Hey everyone, you're listening to Something Real, and today's sermon is called To Prepare the Way. We're going more in depth with what we talked about in the previous podcast regarding why Luke's accounts and why his recordings are so important, why they matter, and why they're even included in the first place. So without further ado, here's today's message. Well, as we are coming back to our study in the book of Luke, we're, we're just getting started. Last week we introduced the book. We talked about the whole concept and, and why uh, Luke was writing this as he, uh, as he was intentionally trying to strengthen the faith of not only this individual named Theophilus that he was writing to, but uh, to all of of the believers, all of the church. Uh, it was clearly his intention for this to be read by a wider audience. And it seems pretty clear that he wasn't intending uh, a, a strictly Jewish audience, uh, but as the only Gentile writer of, of all of the scriptures, uh, Luke is writing to what seems to be at least a mixed audience and primarily a Gentile audience. He identifies uh, things that would have been clearly well known to Jews. Uh, names and places that he clarifies that he wouldn't have had to clarify otherwise. And he's establishing a historicity of the gospel. So as Luke is, is laying this down, what he's trying to do is to give us a touch point, a foundation, a firm place to stand so that we can have a confident faith. To know, as he said in verse 4 of chapter 1, to know the certainty of what we've been taught, what's been passed on from those who were actually eyewitnesses. And Luke, in his own journey, had studied and investigated these things. Surely this investigator uh, put that same effort into writing an orderly account. That's his plan here, is to put down an orderly account. He's not necessarily trying to be chronological, as the other writers might be, but to make sure that we have established facts that are verifiable, that we can look at and say, okay, here's a reason that when things hit the fan, I can be strong and confident and bold in my faith. This is a really important thing for us to recognize. Because as we're going through this book, we want to not just see all the stuff we can see, but we want to see what we must see. It's easy for us, I think most of us are used to kind of taking a passage of Scripture and breaking it down dissecting it and we look at a verse at a time or a chapter at a time and we get what we can get from those things and that's not necessarily bad but as we're looking at what Luke is doing here as with any literature we want to look at what was the author's intent what did he want to be said to his original audience what was his plan so as Luke is dealing with this story um, we're coming into a spot now where 400 years of silence from God in Israel. The people of God had not heard a prophetic word from the Lord since Malachi. 400 years go by until Luke picks up his story with John the Baptist. Now, Luke does some pretty unusual things here as he's as he's looking at this picture of John the Baptist, who, by the way, is the last Old Testament prophet, right? Because even though it's written in the New Testament here, 
the new covenant, the New Testament, begins with Christ on the cross and the resurrection. So up until that, until the completion of the work, we're still in the old covenant. And John is a prophet just like Elijah or Isaiah. In fact, we'll see here that he is coming in the spirit of Elijah. He is the Elijah who was to come, Jesus said. We'll deal with that perhaps a little more another time. But as we're walking through this, Luke who Paul calls the beloved physician, a guy who's used to observation, a little more intellectual in his focus, trying to lay down a reasoned, uh, established foundation for the faith. Doesn't it seem a little weird that he would start out with a story about angels and supernatural miracles? That doesn't seem like a place that a science-minded person trying to establish the reasonableness of our faith would start. So why does Dr. Luke start here? Why does he include these stories that none of the other Gospels include? Only Luke talks about the birth of John the Baptist. Only Luke talks about the angels coming to speak to Zechariah and Mary, as we'll see in a moment. Only Luke records the details of Christ's birth the way he does. Matthew has some things, but not as detailed as what Luke does. Why would he do that? Well, let's walk through the chapter 1 together today and see. As we look at the whole of this chapter, and it's a pretty long chapter, Luke's reasoning becomes pretty clear. When we approach it, seeing why he wrote the book, according to his own words, what he's trying to accomplish, then we can look at this story and see how it fits into the bigger story arc of what he's doing. Now there are, as I mentioned, a lot of things that we can see in this. So I had to cut the sermon in half. So what you're getting today is only half of what was originally planned to go. So if this goes two hours, it would have been four, right? So uh, as we look through this today, with all the stuff we can see, that we can learn, there's one thing that we must learn. One thing we have to see from what uh, Luke is writing here. And it's simply this, a confident faith rests in the nature and character of God. That's our core reality. As we work through this text today, bear that in mind. He's writing this gospel so that you can know, that you can be certain, that you can have a rock-solid trust that what you believe is right according to what has been passed on from the apostles, And it is reasonable that there is a reason for you to believe it. And it has an impact on our lives. As we go through it, bear that core reality in mind. A confident faith rests in the nature and character of God. Say that with me if you would. A confident faith rests in the nature and character of God. So, today we're not going to look up a lot of different scriptures. So we'll look up at least one. Um, uh, beyond this text. Normally, you know, if you've been with us, you know, I like to, to jump around and see how the scriptures support one another. Today, we're not going to do that so much. But we are going to read through this chapter together. And it's a long chapter, so just the reading is going to take a good chunk of our time today. So bear with me as we explore God's word together. Let's take just a moment to pray together at the outset. <coughs> Father in heaven, 
this is your word. It's not my word. It's not even Luke's word. This is your word. And so as you have inspired uh, this human author to write, help us today, Lord, illuminate your word to us by your Holy Spirit. Cause us to see what you want us to see. It's easy for us to put our framework, our agenda on it and, and to um, approach it looking at it for what we want it to say. Help us to see what you're actually telling us. Father, right now I know that in this room and, and wherever folks might be hearing this message, the enemy is seeking to distract, to deceive, to discourage, to put all of the junk of our week into our minds so that we are obstructed and not able to, to really interact with your spirit and your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, Father, by the delegated authority that he gives us as believers, as your children, I command every demon to flee, to be silent, so that we at this moment would hear only your voice, no one else. Father, tear down our strongholds. Rip from our hearts those dark places that we have protected, those sins we have not released to you. And Father, knowing that anytime we're together, we have those among us who, who perhaps are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray that you would open hearts and minds that we would see truly that you have given us a reasonable faith and that there is only one way to have a relationship with you. That's your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the words that you've given to Luke. And I pray today that you would speak beyond this, this sermon itself, that your spirit would move in us to accomplish what your word is set out to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so turn with me, if you would, to the, the book of Luke. If you're not familiar with it, it's the third book of the New Testament. So you're about uh, three-quarters, four-fifths of the way through your Bible. It gets skinny on the right-hand side and thick on the left-hand side if you're in the right area. So you get past the names you don't recognize to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John comes after Luke. Chapter 1 is easy to find because it's the beginning, so there we go. <clears throat> just to give you context, just to, uh, to set this in its proper place, um, let's take a look at what we saw last week, the introduction in verses 1 through 4. We're going to pick up today with verse 5 in our focus, but just to see where we're coming from, here's the first four. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those <clears throat> who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Here's our focus. Now he's, he's introduced it. He's saying, here's what I'm going to write. Now he's writing the story, the account. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Let me just stop here before we even go any farther. I'm going to have to stop a couple of times throughout this to, just to give us some, 
perspective. Now, I was listening to, or I was watching a YouTube video, a sermon this week from a prominent Bible teacher who spent about 15 to 20 minutes just on Herod in this section. His sermon was longer than mine's going to be today. I promise. Um, and, and that's not a bad thing. I was intrigued. I was taken aback. But Herod isn't the point of what Luke is saying. It's a good context. Herod was, a, uh, was actually not a, a true uh, Israelite. He was of the sons of Esau. He was an Edomite. And as he came uh, and became king, he was a king under Rome. Not a superior king, but he was the king under Rome. And uh, this particular Herod is Herod the Great. There were a series of Herods. This one is known as Herod the Great. He was brilliant and evil. He had his wife murdered and two of his sons murdered to protect his own power and authority. And yet most of the, the great architecture that, that happened in Palestine during that period, much of which we still would see today uh, as if you go on an archaeological tour, including the temple itself, was built uh, at Herod's command. Brilliant man. Horribly wicked. So Luke is establishing here a period, a historicity, to say, look, this actually happened. It's not a fable. It's not a myth. Here's why this matters. If you're talking about Roman times in particular, they have all these gods. They were very spiritual, but they didn't know the one true living God. And so all of the Roman myths, the Greek myths as well, were out there. They were not tied to a historical point. Luke is saying this actually happened. What you're seeing in, in what's been handed down to us from the apostles is verifiable by history. You all know Herod. You don't have to be a Jew to know Herod. You know Herod. So you can confirm this. We'll see this pattern throughout the book as he continues to give names, dates, descriptions. Not a vague concept, but very specific and detailed as he goes through. So in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Abijah was somewhere, uh, one of his ancestors up the line. When David divided the temple work, King David, uh, the great king of Israel, divided the temple work into divisions or courses so that uh, they would have an orderly rotation as a military-minded guy, he put together, David, the great general, great king, put together this orderly uh, approach to working in the temple. So Zechariah belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. That means she was also of the priestly line. So you have a guy with this sacred lineage, a sacred role, and his wife is also from that role. So it's like doubly sacred. This is really uh, significant to a Jew. And for a Gentile approaching it, they're going to want to be able to, to track and understand. A non-Jew may not understand all the significance, but again, seeing the historicity of it. So there's significance in that Zechariah and Elizabeth were both descendants of Aaron. Verse 6, both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Why does that matter? Because it's not the role that makes them righteous. The role has them set apart. But what they did with that is what made them righteous. 
God is saying, look, it's not just that they had a title, but they actually lived it out. I don't want to spend too much uh, time on, on breaking this down, but I really, really want to. How many of us wear a title of Christian, but we don't walk it out? People wouldn't say they walked uprightly in the sight of God. They kept his commandments. They were faithful to him. Title doesn't do it. Surrender does. So they were righteous before God. Verse 7, they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Children were seen as, as uh, blessings from God, a sign of God's approval. And so even though he's showing this juxtaposition, even though they were righteous, these are people that, that um, lived right before God, they still didn't have kids, and now they were old, past childbearing years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty in verse 8, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. When David divided this up, the way they chose among that course, when your course was on duty, the way they would cho choose a particular job, and this was a really important job, this burning incense on the altar, you're getting as close to the Holy of Holies as anyone can get other than the high priest. Only the high priest can go into the most holy place. But you're getting where others can't go to burn incense on the altar that represents the prayers of the people of Israel. So God's people are being represented, the prayers of God's people are being represented as you go in. And they would basically roll dice. They would cast lots, the Urim and the Thummim that they would use is what they were called. And as they would roll these dice, uh, the teaching was that God controlled the roll of the dice. It wasn't luck of the draw. It was God said, this is how it's going to be. So on this particular occasion, God saw fit for Zechariah to be chosen by the lots. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This is a high honor. Verse 10. When the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. That's how it, that's how it worked. They would gather outside the area. They couldn't go into there, but they would gather out in the general temple area and, and they would pray and generally they would pray on their knees and they would lift their hands out while he would go in and he'd burn the incense and then he'd come back out he would uh, issue a prayer over the altar as he was doing it and then he would come out so they're outside uh, praying and waiting verse 11 starts to kick up a notch here then an angel of the lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense the altar of incense representing the prayers going up to the lord and an angel of god a messenger of god shows up. Now, a human person wouldn't be allowed in there at this point. This is only for the appointed priest. And yet he gets in there, and there's a dude standing next to the altar. This is huge. An angel of the Lord, a messenger of God, appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled, to say the least, and was gripped with fear. He's encountering a supernatural being. Now we see uh, you know, all kinds of you know, things devoted to uh, seeing spirits and ghosts and, and stuff like that. And it's pretty freaky when people you know, encounter those things. You watch a movie or a documentary and it's like, oh, wow, that's crazy, supernatural stuff. You know, even Ghostbusters, hilarious, freaky. But so as you're 
as you're um, picturing this, imagine you're doing what you are expected to do, what you are trained to do, what your mind is prepared for, and then this thing that is beyond your understanding happens, and you don't really know how to take it in. Suddenly, you're face-to-face in the presence of a supernatural entity. You think you might be gripped with fear? It makes sense what Zechariah is doing here. He's startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, this is the theme of angels when supernatural beings show up in the Bible. They say this a lot for obvious reasons. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink that's uh, a part of the Nazarite vow among Jews, and the same vow that Samson took and violated. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Can you imagine? That, I mean, this is, this is a, a, an angel, a messenger of God, giving this message. Don't be afraid. You're not going to even believe what God is going to do in you and your wife, literally, as you are going to conceive this child. Yes, you're old. Yes, you're not really in that situation anymore. And obviously you haven't ever been. God is going to do something amazing, but not just give you a baby. He's going to give you the baby. He's going to give you the baby who will be the promised prophet who will go before the Messiah to make the way straight, to turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord, to call the wayward people of God to repentance so that when Messiah comes, they will be ready to receive this salvation. This is going to be your son. His reaction is notable. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? In other words, can I really believe you? Can I trust this word? Can I trust this promise? How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. In parentheses, in my mind, not in the text of your scripture, I'm seeing this is too big for God. You know, it's funny how often we pray like that, don't we? We pray for God to move, and then we don't really expect Him to do anything about it. Because it's just too big. God can't fix this situation. We would never say it aloud, but somewhere in the back of our minds, in the dark recesses of our hearts, we have those doubts. 
And even when we read the promises of God in Scripture or have, as we see here, an angel of God make the promise directly to your face, we still doubt. How can I be sure of this? How can I trust this? The angel answered, and I, I take it that the angel is calm in his answer. That's the, the tone that I read from this. Maybe you see it differently. But as I read this, there's a calm confident assurance that I'm picking up here in the vibe. Like only one who knows reality from fantasy can have. The angel answered, I'm Gabriel. Great name, by the way. It's a good name to name your son. It means mighty one of God. God's mighty warrior or champion. I'm Gabriel. <laughs> How can I be sure of this? I'm Gabriel. It's like, I'm Batman. Yeah. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now, you want to know how you can be sure? You want a sign? I got your sign. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. I've heard many preachers say that as God was answering Zechariah's prayer with this child, he's now answering Elizabeth's prayer with his muteness. So I don't know about that. but Verse 21, Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. Remember, they're outside praying. They're on their knees holding their hands out. Um, what's going on? Preacher's taking a long time. You know, we get that sometimes. Wondering why he stayed so long in the temple, verse 22, when he came out, he realized he could not speak to them. They realized, <clears throat> excuse me, he could not speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. So he's gesturing, trying to communicate what happened without words. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. Shocking. Gabriel said it was going to happen. Here it is. And for five months she remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Man, I tell you what, we could preach a sermon just on those couple of verses there. But the story continues. This is really one big prelude to the coming of the Messiah. So as he's uh, working through the annunciation of John the Baptist as Gabriel announces to Zechariah what's going to happen. We see a second annunciation, the annunciation of Christ as Gabriel now is going to announce to Mary what's going to happen to her. All part of the same prelude. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, she's been in seclusion for five months, in the sixth month God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. <coughs> to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary, not unlike Zechariah, was greatly troubled at his words. Now, that means her, her mind was disturbed. She was a little freaked out. Okay? 
It's not like, oh my gosh, this is such a terrible greeting. She's seeing an angel. So she's disturbed, she's troubled, and she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Why is he saying this to me? But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You've found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the, home of Jacob, over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now this is a significant statement that he's making. He's telling Mary, this is the Messiah. This is the promised one who will keep God's covenant with King David to always have an heir on the throne forever. This particular one, now this is just a common girl. She's not a priest. She's not you know, uh, in a palace. Just a common girl in a small town. And she gets visited by an angel to be told, you will bear the Messiah. You will have this child who will be known as David's offspring. Her response in verse 34 makes sense. How will this be since I'm a virgin? She, she's like, okay, uh, I'm not doubting the way Zechariah was, but can you walk me through this process? Because uh, I don't know a lot, but I know that it doesn't normally work that way. I don't, I've not been in a relationship with a man that would generally produce biological offspring. So catch me up here. Verse 35, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Why will He be called the Son of God? Because He is the Son of God. If His if the conception happens with God as the literal father, then the Son of God is the appropriate title. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. Key verse here. Great for memorizing. If I were making a program to give to you to take notes in, I would probably put it down as a memory verse for today. Oh yeah, I think I did. For nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Mary responds, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. Check this out now. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. So Elizabeth, Mary's elder, very significant in that culture, even much more so than what, than what we would recognize today, 
her elder says, why am I so blessed that the mother of my Lord should come? Now, it's not just that she's having a baby. She is recognizing this baby that you're going to have is my Lord. How does she know that? Because she was filled with the Holy Spirit and God is speaking through her. She's prophesying as she's talking here. And as she's explaining, or not explaining, but she's uh, declaring this blessing over Mary, Elizabeth is blown away by what God is doing. And just as the angel said that this infant John, even from birth, would be filled with the Holy Spirit, here we're seeing this happen even in the womb. Even in the womb. There's a pretty strong pro-life argument to be made there, but that's not our point today. We have here the, the first of two songs that are recorded in this chapter. And most of us are familiar with it. If you're from a religious background, you've probably heard it called the Magnificat. This is Mary's response. She sings a prayer. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as He said to our fathers, I would underline, even as he said to our fathers. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. When it was the time, so about three months, if this is the sixth month, about three months, it seems like she may have actually been there when John the Baptist was born. We don't have that recorded for us, but I think that's a reasonable speculation. How cool is that to think about the possibility that Jesus, the Messiah, was actually present when John was born? In utero, of course. Picking up in verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, this was according to the law, on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. They weren't going to take her word for it. So then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, important word here, immediately, his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. So as soon as all of this happens, John is born, and now he's being presented, and now he's being named, in accordance with what the angel said, the obedience preceded 
the removal of this, of this uh, sign of muteness. So while Zechariah can't talk, the baby's born, his mind and heart has clearly already changed. I'm sure that the moment he couldn't speak, he believed the promise at that point. So now for nine months, he's been thinking, okay, I'm trusting God, I get it, I've learned my lesson, and yet he still had to stay under the burden of muteness. He can't speak. The baby's born, am I ready? Ah, he still can't talk. Eight days go by. Now, as the baby is circumcised and named, the obedience takes place, God looses his tongue. And he can speak. And now, as he can speak, he speaks praises to God. Excuse me. <clears throat> Immediately, verse 64, his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. They didn't even know. They weren't there for the prophecy. They didn't see the angel. How much uh, Zechariah was able to or willing to communicate to his wife during all this uh, time of silence, we don't know. What Elizabeth may have passed on to them, we don't know. What we do know is that when God did amazing things, people wondered about it. They see this activity and say, this isn't normal. It's normal for God. It's not normal for our observation. And it led to people asking questions. What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand is with him. Now we come to the second of the two songs here in this. As Zechariah uh, <clears throat> is praising God, this is the, the prayer that he sings as well. Verse 67, his, fire, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now notice, he's praising God for what God has done, right? But Jesus hasn't been born yet. Think he learned finally to trust God's promises? When the angel told him this and he said, how can I really trust this promise? Now, he didn't get the second promise. He didn't get to see what Mary was doing. I'm sure he's caught up by now. He's not, not an unintelligent guy. He's got this figured out. But he learned to trust God. And so as he's learning to trust God, he's praising God for what is yet to happen as a settled matter, as if it already has. Because God has done what he is doing. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. That's important. We'll get to it in a minute as he said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now his attention turns from the Messiah to the promised prophet, the forerunner. And you, my child, you, my John, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him, 
to give His people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come, excuse me, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is the transition. We're going from the prelude now into the next part of the story which we'll pick up at a later time. So, working through this whole story, we're seeing some things about God. And if we start to actually look at it analytically, we start to, to think, okay, why? Why would he include this? What does this do to take the story forward? What is this adding to our ability to be certain about our faith? How can I have a more confident faith, a deeper trust in what I've learned and what I've put my stock in than I did before because of this passage? Because that's why he's included it. Now, there are a lot of other things, man, that we could spend weeks just preaching this chapter alone because there's so much we could glean from it as we break it down. We don't have time for that or we'll never get through the book. But it's a worthwhile study. As we look at this today, we need to check this out. God shows His nature and His character in these events. Luke, probably not given to uh, belief in supernatural things nearly as much as others, it's unlikely that at that time when people were a little more spiritual minded, there were, there were atheists at the time, but not in the same vein that we might think of it today. There wasn't uh, so much the secular mindset as what we are prone to see here. But Luke, as a physician, whether he was a, a noble physician or a common physician, uh, in whatever case, he's used to and trained to and prone to look at cause and effect. How can I measure this? How can I weigh this? How can I see a problem, apply a solution? At this time, uh, we're moving into the time in Greek medicine uh, that, that influences Rome where pharmacology becomes big. In fact, uh, in the first century, just so not too long after Luke is, is uh, walking here, uh, Galen, uh, not Galen, uh, I won't remember the name and I won't get it pronounced right if I do say it, uh, but one of the Greek uh, physicians wrote a uh, a textbook, a pharmacopoeia, if you will, that carried on until the 19th century as the primary basis for medicine. That's a long time, right? First century to 19th century? So Luke is beginning to think, in all likelihood, according to those influences. And yet, here he is sharing the supernatural story of angels and, and God uh, doing these miracles, something flipped for him in the process of investigating. And if you look at your own life, you probably have had experiences like this. When you don't believe in something, and then events change your mind so that you become fully convinced of it, that becomes a passion for you. 
when I met my wife, I was, uh, we were on diametrically opposed theological positions at the time. We were 18 and knew everything. And so uh, we spent a lot of our courtship arguing about these diametrical, uh, diametrically opposed theological positions. We are not in that situation now because we're not 18, so we know a lot less than we used to. What's funny to me about that, and maybe it will be funny to you, maybe it won't, hopefully it will connect the dots here, is about a week before I met my wife, a week, seven days, I held the same position that she did. And someone convinced me, a pastor friend, convinced me of the truth of a new perspective. And when I saw it in Scripture and became convinced of it, it took all of about a half an hour of conversation for me to take everything that I believed and say, whoa, I was out of line with the Bible. I'm going to turn and go this way. That's called repentance, by the way. I was going this way. I've changed my mind. I'm going this way. And it became such a passion for me that this was my pri- Now, listen, I was a Cubs fan. My wife was a Cardinals fan. And our primary argument was about theology, not about baseball, right? So I was passionate about this. That's, in all likelihood, kind of what happened to Luke. As an unbeliever, looking for proof, looking for proof, looking for proof. Once he became convinced, he became passionate. Once he saw the change in the lives of other believers, and he saw that these things that had been passed on were true, nothing could shake him from that. And he leads out with this story. Now, let's get back to why he's writing this. Why did he include this? Because, as our core reality said, a confident faith rests in the nature and character of God. If you're going to trust that, you know, in, in this Christianity, then you need to trust in the foundation of it, which is that God is worthy of trust. He's a big God. Amen? This is the point that the Old Testament is picturing, that God is big, and He's vast, and He's infinite, He's inconceivable, and He's holy, and He's other, and you have no right to stand before Him. And yet He's compassionate and loving and makes a way, a temporary way throughout the Old Testament, to have your sins covered up but not removed. Now... We're coming to this new covenant. The promised salvation. God has remembered His promises. He has acted in the lives of His people and in the world of His creation. This God is worth trusting. You can be confident in your faith because the God you trust in has backed it up. Let's look at how this plays out. So what does God do? Now we're going to get to the points in your program. I, I told you we we're going to take a long time reading through it. So there's so much more to talk about. We'll try to catch it over uh, coming weeks. But as we're looking at this, there are some keys that you and I need to see. God, in this passage, displays His nature and His character. So as He's doing this, what does God do? What does He do here And what does he do in our lives? What does he do in the world today? First, let's see this. God does what is beyond. God does what is beyond. He is active. He does what's beyond your observation, your understanding. 
He's active in the world today. That's this idea of a personal God we know as theism. Uh, the old philosophy of deism kind of portrays God as a cosmic watchmaker where he did create the world. There is a God. There's an intelligent design to things. But he kind of basically wandered up like a watch and then just let it go. So God's kind of sitting back like Bill Cosby. You know, so I'm going to just let it go. And as, as we have that deist mentality, God is impersonal. You might have the picture of, of a force out there rather than the personal God. Luke may have been less inclined towards supernatural thinking than the Hebrew authors of Scripture, but he leads with it, demonstrating that the kingdom of God is built upon God's direct activity in the world. The kingdom of God is built upon God's direct activity in the world, and especially among His people. This spiritual activity is what we call supernatural, in that it is above or beyond observable nature, material science. It goes beyond what we comprehend and understand. That doesn't make it less real. Luke establishes here the centrality of God's supernatural activity in the world beyond our understanding, beyond our measurable um, observation, that God's activity in His world is the norm, not the exception. God's activity in the world is the norm, not the exception. God doesn't occasionally, once in a while, break into the world to do something crazy. You know, I guess I can't let them go on their own anymore. I better step in and do something. No, it's the norm. God is active and involved in the world all the time. Sometimes He steps outside of of the normal way of doing things, but he is always active, always involved. God's activity in the world is the norm, not the exception. God does what is beyond. He is active. We see also that God does what seems impossible. God does what seems impossible. He is able. First I had he does what is impossible, but I was afraid that might be confusing. Because the point here is exactly what Elizabeth says to Mary in verse 37, or as Gabriel, I mean, says to Mary in verse 37, that nothing will be impossible for God. When God is involved, all of the boundaries that you and I have go away. God does what seems impossible. He is able. Whether we're talking about an old couple having their first baby when they've been barren their whole lives, or a virgin conceiving a mother without a biological dad in play. We know lots of moms without dads. We're talking about the biological aspect here. One seems to be you know, a miraculous thing because there's no real, no real logic to it, even though it uses the natural process. And then with Mary, the natural process is tossed aside, and God says, I'm going to intervene directly here in a miraculous way. It's miraculous what I'm doing in the others, but we'll use the standard way of conceiving a baby. With Mary, I'm going to do something completely different, never been done before, never be done again. If he can do those things, what do you have in your life that's impossible for God? We come into a lot of hard situations. 
and we have struggles that seem impossible, you and I need to know that whatever our current impossible is, God can handle it. Nothing will be impossible with God. He does what is beyond. He does what seems impossible. Third, we see that God does what He plans. He does what He plans. He is intentional. God is intentional. God does what He does on purpose. There are no accidents. He's working out a plan that He has had from the beginning. There are no surprises for Him. He is wise. He knows what He's doing. We've spoken many times in here about Jeremiah 29.11 as uh, the people of Israel are being exiled into Babylon and God says, look, you're going to have 70 years there. I'm going to break you down. Not because I hate you, but because I love you and I need you back. I need to strip away all of the pride that is in you. So I'm going to use evil men to do that. And you'll be in exile. But after 70 years, I will bring you back. And when I bring you back, you will turn to me. And you will seek me with your whole heart. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And even though you don't see it, because right now you're going through the suffering of exile, my plans are never thwarted. I planned this from the beginning. I will carry it out in the end. Philippians 1.6 says that we can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. God makes plans and he keeps those plans. He's intentional. He knows what he's doing, even when we don't. God does what is beyond. He's active. He does what seems impossible. He's able he does what he plans. He's intentional. This is a rational, thinking God. Not some capricious, um, cosmic killjoy who just throws things around. Next we see that God does what he says. He's faithful. God does what he says. He keeps his promises. He is faithful. We see this come up over and over in Scripture as we praise the faithfulness of God. He stands by His people. More specifically, He stands by His Word. Sometimes we get disgruntled with God, that God didn't do what we expected Him to do. Because we're expecting Him to do things He did not promise to do. Well, if I'm serving God, why am I not happier? Because He didn't say you would be. That was never the point. Why am I having such a hard time paying my bills? God didn't promise you wealth. If I really love God, shouldn't this all be fixed? No. There's no picture in Scripture that gives us that as a, as a reasonable expectation because God's primary priority is not for you and I to prosper in this life. Now, he may use that, but as often as wealth is a blessing in Scripture, it is also a warning and a curse. God uses it for a lot of different purposes. Job, the righteous man, was smitten physically. God broke him down. Not because he was sinning and God needed to punish him. 
but so that God could show his power, his rightness to all of us. That's not fair. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute. The reality of life is that God keeps his promises. Don't expect him to keep promises he didn't make. And don't expect that you can go off when God gives a promise that is conditional. If you do this, then I will do this. And then you don't do this. Well, why didn't God do his part? Because you missed the promise, bro. The whole point is, if God says, if you do this, then the following is a conditional promise. God doesn't fail. But if I tell my, my kid, take out the trash, and then we'll have ice cream. And they don't take out the trash. Guess who's not getting ice cream? Daddy's still getting ice cream. Let's just tell you that right now. <laughs> we fail to keep our promises. We know this. I mean, just look at us here in this room. How many of us here in this room have been victimized by people who didn't keep their promises? We have broken relationships. We probably have as many uh, folks here in, uh, it, it, who have been victims of divorce as not. Because somebody didn't keep their promises. And maybe it was your mate. Maybe it was you. And all likely it was probably both of you. Because the reality is, I break my promises. I'm standing up here telling you about the nature and character of God, and I fail. And I'm calling you to keep your promises, and I blow it. My wife and kids can testify to that. But God doesn't. He's not like us. Where do we see that in the text here? The birth of John was prophesied. I mentioned at the beginning that we had 400 years of silence from Malachi to the birth of John the Baptist. Up until John the Baptist, four centuries without a prophet from God sent to speak to Israel. Turn, if you will, you can keep Luke marked if you like. But turn to the left to Malachi. Back up past Matthew. Malachi is the book right before that. It's the last of the Old Testament books. It actually, in this particular case, not all of them are in order of, of their writing. In this particular case, it is. This is the, the end of the Old Testament, uh, both chronologically and in the Scriptures itself. Malachi is a short book. That's why he's listed among the minor prophets. Major and minor prophets are divided just basically by how big their books are. Okay, So um, Malachi is a small book. Major prophets, Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, they like big books. And they cannot lie. So as, they're, as we're looking at Malachi, take a look at chapter 3, verse 1. As the Old Testament canon is closed, God sees fit to speak through Malachi and say this. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. He goes on to speak of the judgment that comes with the Messiah. But jump ahead to chapter 4. Hmm. 
But we'll just read the whole chapter there. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will, will be stubble. And that day is coming, <clears throat> excuse me, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You may remember that phrase from a famous hymn. The Son of Righteousness, referring to the Messiah, will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Speaking of final judgment. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. Speaking to the, the nation of Israel as he closes the canon and the last of the prophets here, reminding them, keep the commandments, keep the law, which they will inevitably fail to do as we do. See what he says here. This is a reference to what we just read in Luke 1. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now this is, as so many apocalyptic prophecies, this falls under what is called by many theologians the law of double fulfillment. I'm not always comfortable with the term law because I can't observe everything. So my science-minded ways would say the theory of double fulfillment. But we do see this. I'll use the term law because those who are much wiser than I use it. What we see in so many of these prophecies is a short term, so to speak, an initial uh, fulfillment, and then a later, fuller, literal fulfillment. <coughs> Happens in many of the prophecies of Messiah. And in this particular case, we see John, as we just read in Luke 1, coming in the spirit and power of Elijah the prophet to do exactly what this prophecy says to prepare the way of the Lord. And Jesus then says later on, we'll see uh, when we get more uh, looking at John, when, when Jesus is talking about him, he says, if you will if you will receive it, if you'll buy this, if you can let your mind go here, John is Elijah. Now, he's not Elijah, but he is Elijah. Elijah will come later. And we will see uh, God turning again at that final judgment. But we see here John coming as the forerunner to say, here's the Messiah, here's the Lamb of God. Repent. Get your heart right. Turn back to God before it's too late. God keeps His promises. 400 years have gone by since God promised to send the forerunner and to send the saving one, the Messiah. And now, why does Luke include this story? Because he wants us to see that God keeps His promises. When he says something, he does it. He does what he says. He's faithful. He can be trusted. And if we can trust God to keep his promises here, if we can trust this promise of the forerunner, and even after 400 years of waiting, how many people do you think gave up on it? You think a lot? I would think a lot. Don't we? But he said he was returning, and nothing's changed. 
He said he would make me perfect and I would be like Christ, and yet I still struggle with sin. He said he would fix this, and yet I'm not fixed. And when God makes a promise, he doesn't keep it on your timeline or mine, but we can trust that he is faithful and he does what he says. 400 years, and he keeps his promise. He will keep all of his promises. So I can trust that when he says he will never leave me nor forsake me, when he says that his plans are good, I can trust these things. When he says that he's working everything for the good of those who, who love him and are called according to his purpose, I can trust that. When he says that, that Jesus is coming again to establish a kingdom, I can trust that. When he says that by trusting in Christ alone for my salvation, I become a child of God and he declares me righteous and a saint, even though my behavior hasn't earned that, I can trust it because God does what he says. Lastly, we see that God does what he wills. God does what he wills. He is sovereign. God is not restricted by our expectations. He's not restricted by our rules or our perception of his rules. He is the lawgiver. He's not restricted by our shortcomings. What he says goes, period. He holds all the authority. Notice in this story in Luke 1 that he uses both the sacred and the mundane to accomplish his will. Zechariah, sacred, right? Sacred lineage, comes from Aaron's line. He's a priest. He's got a sacred role. He is the one who is able to go into the, to the altar to burn the incense. Nobody else gets to do that here. And so he's using the sacred thing in the temple. Sacred place. During the sacrifice at a sacred time. And just really to emphasize all of this, Zechariah and Elizabeth are both of that priestly line. So it's like double divine. Sounds like an ice cream flavor. But <clears throat> ice cream distracts me sometimes. And yet in the same chapter, in the parallel story within this story, he speaks to a common girl, a young woman named Mary, not a priest, not a priest's wife, Nothing special about her in herself except for her surrender and devotion to God. But there's nothing about Mary that's special. Mary's God is. He doesn't speak to Mary at the temple. He doesn't talk to her at worship. Presumably she's at home. This is, he just shows up to her, right? The angel shows up in a common place at a common time to a common girl to do a sacred, miraculous thing. God is not restricted by our expectations, our rules, or our shortcomings. He uses the sacred and the common. And he's not restricted by our abilities. Abraham and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah couldn't conceive. God brought their child Isaac. Zechariah Elizabeth couldn't conceive. God brings their child John. Mary had not known a man in a relationship that would produce a baby, and... God produces the Messiah through her. He's not restricted by what you're able to do, what your shortcomings are. 
Oh, you know, I've sinned too badly. I've failed too much. Really? Have you murdered any Christians lately? Because he used Paul. I, you know, that, but that's different. You know. So have you committed murder to cover up your adultery? Because he used David. God's not restricted by your failures. That doesn't mean he endorses them. He goes beyond because he's sovereign. His grace is sufficient. Christ's sacrifice paid for your failures, but God's not restricted by you. He's sovereign. He does what he wills. Why does this matter? Why, why do we need to know these things? Because if our faith is rooted in our own strength, our own understanding, it will inevitably fall short. If you want to be more confident in your faith, get your focus off yourself. Get your focus off the world around you. Get your focus off your circumstances and put it on the nature and character of God. This same God that we have been talking about, who is active, who is able, who is intentional, who is faithful, who is sovereign. When you focus your mind on Him and you, you found your faith on Him, then you have a rock to stand on. He won't fail. He won't let you down. If it's in your own righteousness, your own piety, man, you failed before you got here today. The moment you started thinking about your righteousness and piety, you were so filled with pride, you were unfit for heaven. So there. So you can look at everybody else's sin. Well, I'm not like that person. That's specifically what Jesus condemned when he said, you know, look at this Pharisee and look at this wretched tax collector. One does all the right things and prays, and Lord, thank you, I'm not like this person. Thief, crook. Psh. This person over here is in sin. Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Guess which one had their prayer accepted? Listen, we've got to understand it's not about us. It matters because the truth is rooted in God. Our confident faith has to be in His nature and character, not in our own. Not in the church, not in people, not in your pastor. It has to be in God. And then, ultimately, the difference that it makes in our lives is we have something to sustain us when everything seems impossible. How many times have you said to yourself, well, that can never change. That can't get any better. Every time we think that, and we all think that at some point, every time we think that, we are putting our faith in what we see and understand rather than in the God who is beyond that. This is exactly why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in the Lord. With all your heart, don't lean on your own understanding. Your understanding is limited. But in all your ways, submit to him and he'll make your path straight. That's the difference it makes in our lives. When we begin to put our focus on him rather than on us, it gives us the ability to be confident, to know the certainty of the faith that we've received. As we wrap this up here, 
My prayer for you is that you will realize that God is not distant. That he is active in the world and active in his people. That you'll recognize that there are no accidents with God. Whatever junk has come into your life has already been sifted through his will. And the fact that you're here, alive and kicking, taking breath and hearing the word of God is the sign that he is not done. He's working. I pray that you will understand that God keeps his promises and never abandons his people. And that you will learn to trust that your toughest situation is never too much for God to handle. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so much bigger than what we give you credit for. Sometimes we think we understand, we think we get it, we know you. The reality is we're just scraping the surface at the very highest point of our understanding. Lord, teach us how to be confident in our faith, not because we're strong or smart or righteous, certainly not because we're faithful but because you are let the power of your love sweep over us sweep everything else away pray this in Christ's name Amen